Welcome to the Patrick Jones Baseball Podcast. My name is Patrick Jones, former hitting coach in the Baltimore Orioles organization and now helping players in the private sector. In today's episode, we have Andy McKay. Andy is the assistant general manager for the Seattle Mariners. And in this episode, we're, we're getting into the mental side of the game. Andy is the best that I have heard be able to articulate and give applicable ways for coaches to help players deal with the mental side of the game, deal with failure, prepare for failure, ways to be present in the box. It's outstanding content. And I was, I've heard him speak before, and I was so happy we were able to get him on the podcast because it's just it's the best that I've heard and I know it's going to be able to help out so many coaches so many of you who are who are listening out there so you're able to impact more and more players so really appreciate Andy for coming on the podcast and I know you no matter who you are you'll get you'll get some benefit out of today's episode one thing I, I would like to ask out of everybody if you know we've you've gotten a lot of new listeners coming onto the podcast, listening to the podcast regularly, and so one of the things that the ways that, that this podcast grows organically is by word of mouth. And so if you enjoy the podcast, the only thing that I ask is that you just share it with somebody, right? Text it to a friend, share it on social media. That's how we're going to continue to grow. You'll notice I don't run any ads on this podcast, and I don't want to run ads on the podcast. So the only thing I ask, you just share the show. That's it. So appreciate you for doing that. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Andy McKay. All right, we now welcome on Andy McKay to the podcast. Andy, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I've followed your work and listened to some other episodes, and uh, I'm glad to be able to participate and, and try to help. Appreciate that. i tell you what, I earlier today I had someone ask me a, a question. It was, a, it was a trivia question, and it was, who is the only Hall of Famer to hit right-handed and throw left-handed? And he's actually a, a former Mariner. Um, not sure if you you know who that is. Uh, I'm gonna take a guess, but I don't want to. I don't want to embarrass myself. But was it Ricky <laughs> Henderson? Yes, it was Ricky Henderson. Very good, very good. And so when when uh, I didn't know that actually, so I I didn't know that, but I was like, you know what? I want to ask Andy because I I knew we we're doing this podcast tonight about Ricky Henderson talking to yourself in third person um and if he has ever recommended players do that to help their game <laughs> uh that's a tougher question i the original question i just uh an excellent excellent biography on ricky henderson came out this summer um that i had read um over the summer and um you know what what a what an amazing player and and when you do read things like that, uh, there's always nuggets inside of them about, you know, what makes that person great. And, um, you know, it may, it's not a mental skills book or, or even like considered to be a mental skills resource, but, uh, you know, the great ones, they leave a lot of clues and, and Ricky certainly did as well. So what were some of the, what was like one, one clue that you, you got from that book? Um, you know, I, I don't know if I'd consider it a clue, but one of, one of my takeaways was 
Um, you know, Ricky was a very um, complicated person, I guess I would say, um, which is which is not unique. Um, but what I found fascinating was like his obsession with individual goals, but they were they were individual goals that helped the team. Um, and what I mean by that is obsessed with scoring runs. Mm. And, you know, most position players will talk about getting hits or, or doubles or some type of individual goal like that, which is, there's nothing particularly wrong with it. Uh, but I'm not sure I'd ever heard of anybody that was, you know, driven to touch home plate more than anybody else who'd ever played. Um, so, you know, that, that really did stick with me. Um, but you're always trying to find, um, what makes people tick and not that it's going to transfer to other people necessarily, but, you know, with, with, with Ricky, you want to, where did that unwavering belief and, and drive come from? And, and like I said, you learn little bits and pieces and, you know, the book did a wonderful job of talking about, you know, his childhood and growing up and, um, things of that nature. So again, I, I'd probably just point back to that, that unwavering belief, um, you know, and, um, how, how do people cultivate it? That's kind of a, a million dollar question. What, what what's your take on you know you mentioned goals there Ricky Henderson what's your take on on players having long-term goals versus short-term goals um do they should they have both is one better than the other um it's an interesting topic um the the question is it depends I mean the answer is it depends and you know I've been fortunate to work with really good players and some of them are, are hardcore goal setters. Um, and some of them have never set a goal in their life. And I wouldn't advocate for either side of it. Um, I would advocate for getting to know the person and what makes them tick. Um, but in anything, there are inherent potential benefits and there are inherent potential um, um, negatives that come with anything. And I have seen goal setting be really detrimental to people um, um, for multiple reasons. It was the wrong goal. Um, it was set too high. And, I, and I'll tell you that with, with goal setting, like the whole art of it is where to set it so that the goal is high enough to push you and challenge you, but not too high to frustrate you. Um, and and that, that in and of itself is really hard. Um, so, I think it's individual. I wouldn't advocate for either side. I would just say that it, it can really help people and it can really hurt people. Some people have, have been really successful with it. Um, some people have never had a goal in their life. And um, if I was pushed on it, I would tell you that the more common trait that I've seen is that people are non-goal setters that almost subconsciously have a goal of being the best they can be wherever they are. And that's about as specific as it gets, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and just because the, the, the environment is so unpredictable, 
things change that you can't control. And so having those, those rigid goals um, can get really frustrating because ultimately you don't control a lot of what's going around, going on around you. Um, so I say all that and I can tell you about a hitter that I worked with that was just obsessed with 200 hits and, and actually got there a few times. And um, the other thing that I would add to it is the research is pretty clear on whether you call it a goal or an aspiration or, you know, a dream, perhaps anything like that. Most of the greats don't, they don't accomplish them. Um, they set them so high that they almost always fall short, but that falling short still leaves them, you know, at a, at a really high level. And I do think that's fascinating to understand. Um, but it comes into play a lot with professional baseball where, uh, you know, people set the goals too low, their aspirations are too low, their standards are too low, and then they meet them. And that's problematic. Um, so kind of a long answer there, but uh, I think you'll probably get this gist of me that I answer a lot of things with it depends. Yeah, well, it's and, not the that's the right answer. And I wanted to ask you that. I was listening to a podcast the other day um, about uh, with Dr. Andrew Huberman, and it was it was he did it about ten months ago, I believe, and that was one of the things on it was was goal setting and visualization and and the main thing that I took from it was um, a lot of the the research that he had said is. Um, the people who, when they thought of what's going to happen if I don't do this, that drove them to be even better than if just focusing solely on, on the goal, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. It, there's a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, I, I was recently when I was at the ABCA convention and, um, you know, somebody asked me about my career path and I said, you know, uh, probably not the answer you want to hear, but I never once thought about being assistant general manager until the job was offered to me. Um, and I'd also never once thought about being a farm director until the job was offered to me. And um, I don't know what that means, but, uh, you know, I've never been one to, you know, I want to do this by by the time I'm 30 or I'm going to do this by the time I'm 35, I've, you know, I, I would advocate for being where your feet are and trying to do the best work you can in the service of others. Um, and just trust that that's going to take you to some places. Well, I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about your, your coaching stop when you were coaching in college, you know, at, I know we have high school coaches who listen to this college coaches too, and, and even professional Um and one of the things that people do want to help players with is the the mental side of the game. I know everybody's looking for specific drills, which I don't necessarily think they're specific drills that help everybody in the mental side of the game. But what were some of the things when, when you were coaching in college that, that you would try to emphasize to your players? Well, I, I think you have to start with anything else, like just like you do with anything else, which is like, what is the goal? What is it? What, what is mental skills, mm -hmm. right? Like if we're going to have a hitting process, for example, uh, we're going to either try to hit the ball harder 
We're going to try to make better swing decisions. Uh, we're going to try to create better true, uh, better ball flight, for example. Um, make better swing decisions, something along that line. If we're talking pitching, it's like we're going to add velocity, add command, add a breaking ball, shaping of a breaking ball, things like that. So if we're going to have a mental skills program, we need to have that, that end in mind of what is this? You know, just like you want a weight training program. And I, I think most coaches, if you present them with that question, um, they're going to be stumped. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem, you know? And so you do have to create this language around the program of what is it, what does mental skills mean to us and what are we trying to do with it? And I, for me, the answer is, you know, and we'll stick to baseball, for example, uh, which would make sense since it's a baseball podcast. The, the goal of mental skills is to get the athlete to focus on the right thing at the right time to commit to it so that he can think freely, uh, think clearly so that his body can move freely. You know, it's kind of wordy. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, right? Yeah. But that, that gives us a starting point. Okay, this is what we're trying to do. Every 15 seconds, because that's basically the time between pitches, we're trying to get our pitchers, our hitters, our defenders, whomever, to be clearly committed to the right thing, um, whatever that thing might be. And we know that that right thing is going to be external in nature, meaning it's going to be something outside of their body. Uh, it's going to be a target uh, to hit. And you start from there. Now you can work backwards into what, what are our processes? What are our tools to help us get there? But way too often, um, we haven't created a vocabulary around what we're trying to do. Um, you know, I've done a lot of presentations. I've done a lot of, you know, talks to groups. And like, I'll give you an example, like, like take the word compete you've coached, you work with coaches. If you, if you started a presentation and said, okay, how important is it that our players know how to compete? Raise your hand. Everybody raise both hands. Right. right. Okay. And then if you said, okay, then take out your note card, write down, what does it mean to compete? Most people can't do it. And, you know, if I'm working with a team, I will do this. Um, you know, there, there's 30 team members, there's five or six coaches. Is competing important to this program? Yes, it is. Okay, great. Would everybody please write down what it means to compete? Guaranteed, you're going to get 30 different answers. I think that's problematic. Because if I wrote, if I asked you the question of like, um, what is a fastball? You know, yeah, the answer might be a little different, but they'd all generally be the same. You know, if I asked them, what is the goal of hitting? The answer would be pretty similar, you know, hit the ball hard, something like that. Right. Yeah. So you do have to create verbiage so that now we know apples are apples and oranges and oranges. And I think in the mental skills arena, we fail to do that constantly. Mm. Um, 
in addition to, we don't even define what it is we're actually trying to accomplish with this. And I think in so many things that we do in baseball, we fail to connect that to the end result that players need and teams want. Whether it's mental skills, why are we doing this? What does visualization actually do? What does self-talk actually do? How does it relate to this in-game performance that we need so desperately? If we're going in the weight room, why? What is it going to accomplish? And I think to get true buy-in from players, you have to educate them as to how this is going to impact you individually and how is it going to impact our team? And if you can't bridge that gap for them, they're probably not going to get too serious about it would be my, be my take. I think that's a great point. You just brought up about competing because it's, it's something that I've heard before too, and, and ask people, you know, what they think about it and you hear different answers. Um, so I think, yeah, understanding like the actual definition and creating that common language within your own program is, is vitally important. I, I agree with you. And I think that the definitions should be, you know, something with some depth, something with some thought, you know, not a cliche, not a great quote. I love quotes as much as anybody, but they're fairly surface level, you know, and, um, you know, that's the trick of, of creating that, those, those standards that can bring people together, but also allow for some flexibility for individualization. Um, and these things are hard and that's why coaching is so hard. Andy, I, I remember I was hearing you talk, uh, the ABCA, I was, I went down there, um, with my dad and, uh, listening to you speak. First of all, I thought it was, you did a great presentation. Um, I, I really enjoyed how, um, uh, the tone of, of, of how you talk, you talk slow. And so you, you pause at the I'm right slow. times. What's that, that? compliment? It is, is very, it is a compliment. Yes. Confident speakers speak slowly. I, I believe that. Um, and pausing too, like that's another thing. And I think the delivery of the message I think is so important. Um, cause I, at least I know, I remember a lot of it because of that. Um, that was something I wrote down. One of the things you talked about was, um, preparing for failure. And it's something that ever since you talked I um I have taken that in all the hitters that I've worked with. I've talked with them about that. And it's just, if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining your own thought process and, and helping hitters or just players in general prepare for failure, because I thought it was some of the best content I've heard in a really long time. Sure. Um, you know, it is something I believe in. And I can tell you the pushback that I get and that anybody will get, you know, oh, that's negative thinking. You know, I don't want to visualize failure. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, that is such a cop-out and it's such an immature approach to, to competing because it is inevitable. And, and most people, what ends up happening is they get into these periods of poor performance and they don't know how to handle it. And it might come for the first time, you know, in professional baseball, it might come for the first time, you know, on, in weekend play at the division one level. I don't know, but I do know it's coming for everybody. And, 
you know, the best major league players, every major league player, I can show you a two week period where it's, it's really, wow. <laughs> like they're bad right now. Right. And that's just the game. It's hard. Um, and especially hitting. So I think it's inc- entirely appropriate to sit down with an athlete when they are in a good mental space, uh, preferably before the season starts. Um, because you have to understand that, um, whoops, I'm losing the air. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. Um, when, when human beings get emotional and they get stressed, they lose their IQ points. Like it gets cut in like thirds. So all of a sudden you're now functioning at about 25% of your capacity because of the emotions involved. Great players are emotional. They're so invested in what they're doing. You know, success is great and failure is really hard. And that's exactly how it should be. But sitting with a player before the season and and, and talking about, okay, this is coming. You know, the five strikeouts in a row, um, you know, the one for 25. The the pro game is different because we play so much. But let's sit and talk right now. And in your own words, what would be the advice you want to give yourself? What would be the advice you would give somebody else? And having that conversation, uh, because what I have found is the athlete's actually going to answer that question very well. You don't even have to give it to them. And you're going to guide them and help them in spots, but they're going to be able to answer it. Um, And then you just want to be able to give it to them when they need it and remind them, hey, this is just you. This is a much better version of you talking to this version of you. Um, Because the things are, are very predictable. So like if we just start with a hitter, for example, when hitters go wrong, when things go off the rails, more times than not, you're going to get, um, they want to retool their swings. Uh, I need to go in the cage. I need to hit more and I need to find what's wrong. Okay. That would be like 10th on my list of things that should occur. Um, but that's where they're going to gravitate towards. Uh, they're going to ask for a lot of advice from people they shouldn't be asking advice for, from, okay? Um, you know, I've coached a lot of players. Players will call me for help when they're struggling. And every time I will tell them, listen, I'm not there. I don't know the context. I'm probably going to hurt you more than I'm going to help you. Um, and I think that's the responsible thing to do. There is a competent person there every day that can help far, far more than somebody. But what I can do is try to get their head in a spot to let somebody else help them, you know? Um, So I would go to, how are we defining success right now? You know, you're expecting every time you go to the plate to get a hit, it's not going to work. You're expecting every time you go to the plate that something good, that's just the perspective is way off, you know? Um, 
you act like you're the only one who's going through this. So I would just start down the list of trying to show them a healthy response to all of these things. Um, and more times than not, they're going to come up with that on their own. But it's, it's very powerful for when they then need it. Look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to remind you of what you said you should do. You, know, you should not go on Twitter looking for swing help. You said that, not me. Okay. Um, you should not swing harder. You said that, not me. You should not go in the cage and grind for 200 swings. You said that, not me. Okay. You should not go home and, and take it out on a girlfriend, a wife, a brother, a mother. You said that, not me. Okay. Um, it, it, to me, it's just, it's a no brainer to, to work through this exercise with people. Um, because if you don't have it in play, trying to do it on the fly is really hard. Um, because again, and the other thing you have to remember is coaches get stressed as well. And so when, when a player is not hitting, a, a coach feels it as well. The same exercise works with coaches, by the way. Um, you know, and because their, their emotions get involved and it gets really hard. So. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I think that it's something that, again, it's something that I've already started doing with some of the players that I work with and they've loved it too. And it's like, Oh, that makes sense to me. And, and a lot of those kids are, are high school players. So I think it's, it's something that I would highly recommend doing. Um, another thing I, I heard you say, which I loved is you talked about uh, coaching the response, not the result. Um, what, what, can you explain that to, to the listeners out there? Cause I thought that was another great piece of uh, content. So hitting is so hard at every level and yes, hitting in the major leagues is hard, but I'm not sure like, you know, per age, I think every level is hard. Like hitting in high school is hard for high school hitters. Um, and I, you, you have to keep that in mind. You always have to remember that when coaching hitters. But um, the mistakes are so common. They're so numerous. In every single game, they're going to happen. They're predictable. And we don't need to drive it home any more than it already has been. And so rather than saying, look, you chase two pitches out of the strike zone and you got yourself out rather than hammering that let's just go to how did you respond to it and what was what was the conversation you were having in your head that got you hopefully gets you back to the next at bat or even within a bat you know you swung at a slider in the dirt oo to go into an oh one count you got out of the batter's box I don't want to talk about the swing on the OO pitch. I don't want to talk about the chase. I want to talk about what did you do? Because then you got yourself back into a two, one count and hit a ball hard. And it's just a little bit of like catching them, do it right. Coaching the thing that really matters, coaching the thing that ultimately they have more control over 
because the more you can get them to talk about it, you're also going to find those responses are often just as flawed as the mistake. So if you can help them with a better response, you know, minimizing mistakes is hard. Minimizing the the controllable mistakes that come out of a poor response, that's a little bit easier. And so like, for example, um, you know, a hitter follows a pitch off the other way. He's late, okay? And then they come back and they, they're out in front and they roll over a ground ball, the pull side, and they're out, okay? Hey, tell me about that adjustment you made between pitches. Well, I was late, so I decided to be early, okay? You tried something. How did that work out for you? Yeah, not great. Okay, so it's very common to to over adjust. It's it's no good. You're, it's just replacing one flawed way of thinking with another flawed way of thinking, you know. And so rather than these extreme adjustments, it's helping them adjust back to a center, back to a neutral. Um, so I I do think when I look at hitting. Those are the things that I'm fascinated by. And those are the things that I think make or break hitters. So let's practice them. Let's practice the pitch to pitch adjustment. Let's practice. I popped up two straight balls. What should I do now? Let's really get on top. Okay. So now you just hit a ground ball. <laughs> it's, just, okay. it's still bad, you know, yeah. but you, it takes reps and most hitters are going to gravitate towards getting reps at swings. Swings are important. Having a good swing is important, but it's not hitting. And so these elements of hitting count management adjustments, you know, and I think I talked about this in Nashville. There really aren't many adjustments to make during that bat. You know, you can adjust your targeting meaning like what my plan is in the box, where I'm trying to hit the baseball, you know, you can adjust your rhythm and timing a little bit, but that's about it. So we should be really good at those types of adjustments. So like, I'll give you an example. You're late. Most hitters, because of the stress involved, when they're late, their adjustment is I'll swing harder. The adjustment needs to be, eh, I'll probably start my body a little bit sooner and maybe even slower, you know? So you have to learn the right adjustment and it just takes practice. How often do you think hitters should change their plan during an at-bat? Great question. Um, It depends. (laughs) Um, I've absolutely coached really good hitters who change their approach almost every pitch because they're really good at guessing with the pitcher. I would never tell them to change. I also ask very politely that they not try to talk to other hitters about that <laughs> um, because it might help you and it might work. It's going to destroy six other people. There's no always, there's no nevers, there's no absolutes. But without question, better hitters make fewer adjustments to their plan and they have the same plan more times than not. Again, there are exceptions to everything, 
but and also remember that hitters have very they have a lot of different versions of themselves i don't want to talk to the bad version of you and take data from that i want the best version of you what is your approach and how often do you adjust when you're going good and i can tell you the answer to that more times than not is i don't adjust i stick to my plan and my plan involves something around the middle of the field to the off gap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the flight can vary, can vary a little bit in terms of, like I said, I, I can tell you a perennial all-star that tried to hit every ball as hard as he could, one hop to the second baseman. Mm-hmm. That was his plan. Now, he didn't do it very often. He had a lot of home runs to the pull side <laughs> trying to do that. That was his plan, and he didn't come off of it. Um, people who are trying to hit homers to center field. Sure. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but the best ones have their way and they tend to stick to it better than the others. And they don't come off of it very easily. And one of the fascinating things about my role, having had access to so many different groups, it's fascinating to sit in a pitcher's meeting and then to go sit in a hitter's meeting. It's, it's wild. And you always say, God, I wish the hitters would just sit in here and listen to this, you know? Uh, and you wish the pitchers would go in the other room and sit in and listen to them. Um, because both sides are trying to do things that don't necessarily need to be doing. And both sides probably over adjust to the other. Um, you can game plan yourself away from the best version of you very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge mistake to make. I think as a, as a, as a hitter, you should be trying to be so good at what you do that you're making the pitcher adjust to you. Not vice. And I, and I would say the same thing to hit to pitchers, by the way, but I do think that's kind of the game within the game is who's going to force the other one to adjust. Mm. Interesting you say that because I was listening to Robbie Ray earlier today talk about how um, when he first came up, he was hitting uh, the National League, and he realized he, he then realized how hard hitting was. And since then, he, he changed his pitching philosophy in the sense that he's like, man, like we give hitters way too much credit. Like This is so hard. Like I'm just going to pound the zone, throw with intent, and let my stuff do, do the talking. And he said ever since he changed his mindset into that, he's, he's become a completely different pitcher. Yeah, and so many players have breakthroughs when they have those aha moments like that that just alter their perspective, you know. And um, unfortunately, most of those things come for pitchers. <laughs> uh because pitching is so different than hitting. And I would never say pitching is easy, but if choosing between pitching and hitting, there's no comparison. And most pitchers, when they take a leap in their career, it's because they realize, oh my gosh, hitting is incredibly hard. Why would I ever be afraid to throw a strike? You know? And, uh, you know, here's a little nugget. And this is a hitting podcast. So, your listeners might want to close your ears right now, but you know, first pitch strikes. Oh, oh, stri- the oh, oh count. If you throw a strike at the major league level on an oh, oh count, 96% of the time, 96, 
you get the ball back with either an out recorded or an 0-1 count. Wow. Think about that. That's a real statistic at the highest level of the game. Okay. Now go look at OO swing rates and you'll scratch your head, you know? So you have pitchers who are afraid of throwing strikes. Even with that piece of data that's readily available to anybody with the internet. Okay. Then you've got pitchers that are just saying, I'm just going to throw strike one all the time. And you have hitters that don't swing OO. So you're just like, yeah, this this is this not lining up. <laughs> but that's how the game is. And uh, part of that's what makes it beautiful, I guess. So, Andy, I want to say or give a kind of hypothetical situation. Like you get a player that, you know, comes to your team, whether you're coaching college, pro, whatever. You know, you have all the statistics on the player. You, you probably know what position he's playing. Where is he going to, you know, fit in the lineup? but you don't know him at all. Like what's the first thing that you want to, to find out about him? I mean, like as a competitor, as a person, just anything, like what's the first thing? Like, again, you have all the data in the world on the player and he's coming to your team. Like what's the first, first few things that you want to know about him or maybe just get to know about him in general. Yeah. Um, I want to find out like, so, you know, data doesn't lie. Um, and, you know, as a mental skills coach, one of your jobs is to create clarity. And I'm not sure anything can create clarity the way hard evidence can. And that's why I think all mental skills coaches should be very well versed in data and analytics because it's a truth teller. Mm. And, but what it doesn't tell you is what's behind the curtain. What's the process that created that data? What's the mindset that created that data? And so I want to try to find out what does this person do that allows this performance to happen, good or bad? Because you just can't fix the result. You can only fix the process that creates it, or you can only build upon a process, or you can only try to maintain a process. So for example, if we acquired a new player that was a perennial all-star, for example, I would want to know what are the work routines? What are the drill sets? What's the mindset? What, you know, just like you said with Robbie Ray, there were two different players. There was the, the, the pre aha moment and the post aha moment. I need to know what those moments are. You know, like I talked about before about the, the hitter who tried to hit ground balls to second base. When you're standing in the batter's box and things are going well, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, I want to hear that. When things go wrong for you, what tends to go wrong? You know, so you're just trying to lift up the hood, you know, hypothetically, the hood of the car to see what's beneath the surface. And because the numbers, while they're true, they're, high, they're highly volatile. And if you're going to coach them, you got to coach the process of what creates those numbers. And that's really the job. So you have to find out, you know, who this person really is, what drives them, where are, what are their insecurities? What are their fears when it goes off the rails? What usually causes it? How do they bring it back? Um, 
And that just, it takes a lot of conversation. It takes a lot of trust. It takes some time, um, you know, but that's where I would go. We had a uh, Michael doctor, Dr. Michael Gervais on the show. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with his work at all. And Very one of the things, so. what's that? Very much so. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he, he's awesome. Um, I, I enjoy his work. And one of the things he had talked about is, uh, you know, the, the most common fear is, you know, what someone may else may think of you as a, as a player, as a person. Um, how, how do you help players get over that fear of what somebody else may think? And I know that's, that's definitely an, it depends question. There, there's no response. Um, but I just didn't know if there was any, anything common that you've seen or just anything that you've seen that's worked. Yeah, of course. And, uh, one is right. It is the number one fear, you know, and as I've tried to help people on it, there was really no such thing as a fear of failure. It is a fear of other people's opinions of your failure. And, you know, that's a bit of the ego getting in your way. And so there isn't like a, a magic bullet. Um, there's, there's no magic bullet to any of this perspectives and there are belief systems. And when you can get to those through conversation, you have a chance to, to realign the belief system and the perspective that they take on their performance, their career, the game, et cetera. And so you start talking about things like, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a wonderful basketball coach, um, kind of a, a basketball coach to the stars who does a lot of work with players in the off season. I mean, elite NBA players. And one of his rules are no one else is allowed in the gym. Just me and the player. You know, why? Because I can never get the player to do what I need him to do and push himself out of a comfort zone if other people are going to be watching. Because it's going to be ugly. There's going to be failure. Um, and I think that's really appropriate. I, and I would recommend that to any coach, you know, especially a hitting coach if you really want to try to do some things that are challenging with that player, you might want to get them alone at first. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it just takes that, that relationship that you can have these conversations where people can get vulnerable, where they can at least admit how afraid they are of certain people's opinions. That might take years. Mm -hmm. that's, that's probably not a one-time cup of coffee at Starbucks to get someone to start offering up these types of things. Um, but it should be one of the goals of any coach is to help push people towards that, that level of freedom that you truly don't care what other people think of you. And that's a double-edged sword because when you don't care what people think about you, you're also going to step on their toes a lot. You're also going to upset them a lot. And you have to be prepared for that. Um, and so it really is tricky, but, and even like, as you're, you're talking about a lot of high school coaches that listen to this or whatever, I don't think this is something that you're going to accomplish with a high school player. Mm -hmm. Like these are lifelong skills that we're all trying to develop and evolve towards, but finding that personal freedom, um, to get to that point where you truly don't care what others think. That is something that very few people ever get to, but 
you're trying to slowly make progress towards it. In terms of dealing with professional athletes, I think it's a little bit easier because it's a deal breaker for them. Like, <clears throat> think about this. And I forget who told me this. You know, the most criticized athlete in the world is probably LeBron James. Think about that. You know, the guy who is on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a high school player and has blown apart every expectation that could have ever come his way, exceeded every expectation that was placed on him as a high school player in Sports Illustrated and is still as heavily criticized as anybody, you know. Um, you know, most coaches, most exec, we're on Twitter a lot uh, because that's, it's a, it's a viable way to, to get news. And it is important. You need to be informed. You need to know what's going on out there, right? Take any, take any coach uh, at the professional level, take any executive, you know, and there's going to be a fire so-and-so Twitter handle, you know? Um, most of my, my Twitter feed is, is, is geared towards a lot of Seattle, uh, media, right? Um, the criticism that Pete Carroll takes, it's mind boggling, but you understand that's just part of the deal. And so if you don't have the ability to somehow shield yourself from it, but also laugh at it and laugh at yourself. You know, Popovich is always talking about the self, the importance of that self-deprecating humor. That's so important. Um, it's gonna eat you up. And so I certainly don't have a magic bullet for it, but I do know that you have to educate people of how debilitating it can be. It never helps. And that you have to create a process to overcome it. Um, and I think there's two ways. There's one, learning to embrace it a little bit, learning to make fun of it, learning to have fun with it, knowing that it's unavoidable and also shielding yourself a little bit from it. You know, if, 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 if you happen to be somebody who is written about in the media, don't read the comments. They're never going to be good. Um, and even when the good stuff is written, you know, the same people, uh, that's just as flawed as the bad stuff. You know, it's all written by people who don't really know you or what's going on or what you're having with. So have you ever been at a point in, in your career where, where you, you didn't have the, some of those, those qualities and, and what was, did you ever have that aha moment to help you get past it? Yes. And no, um, you know, I've had a lot of aha moments and then they go away. Um, and, and I guess this is like another perspective piece. Like I'm fortunate I'm doing this at a high level, which means I get to learn from the other people doing it at a high level. Right. There is no such thing as the competitor who has ice water in their veins that doesn't hear it. That is just, that's the biggest myth there is. 
you know, um, everybody's got their insecurities. Everybody deals with a lack of confidence at times. It comes and it goes and it, it, it's a wave at times. And you've got to learn how to ride the wave a little bit. Um, but everybody feels it. And I think just learning that, it makes it easier for you when you're not feeling it, you know? And whether it's a great coach, you know, and that's one of the reasons I read so much is because it helps, it helps create the perspective, you know, of, um, you know, like I just, I just mentioned Pete Carroll, um, study any of the great coaches, they've all been fired. You know, they've all been told, we don't need you anymore. We would like you to go away. We think we would be better off without you. I mean, that's crushing, right? But it happens to everybody. So the more you understand that and can maintain that perspective, the better chance you have. But I think one of my aha moments in kind of in the game, um, it, it came pretty early on. And it was when, and I don't even remember the, who it was specifically, but it was a coach who got fired. And it just, it's like, if this person can get fired, everybody can. Mm-hmm. And likely everybody will. And so then as, you, as you're moving along your career, you're just looking at it like, how many coaching careers really end well? Mm-hmm. Not many. How many playing careers really end well? Not many. So you just understand that going into it and you accept it. That's going to be part of it. The ending is going to be hard. So you know it going in. It's not personal. It's just the way it is. And that's just a lot of that's just experience and wisdom and, and going through it enough times, um, you know, so. Do you, do you look or read on, and I'm sure you do, but on things and get ways to help you develop at your current job that are outside of baseball. Like there's some people who like right now I'm reading an autobiography on Sam Walton, um, which is pretty incredible story. But is there, is there anything that you, you kind of like going to, to, to help uh, develop yourself? Absolutely. And, you know, I think most of the great um, advances in the game of baseball, but really in any endeavor, they come from kind of the combination of multiple disciplines and that intersection of, of multiple disciplines. And so, you know, it took somebody that was a big fan of baseball, but also understood tech, for example, to lead us to kind of some of the places we are right now in the game. Um, and I think that most of what coaching is, like, sure, you have to have a real clear understanding of the game itself. Like, you got to know the difference between a cutter and a slider. You got to know the game itself inside. And out. But that's not what makes a great coach a great coach. Because there are thousands of people, millions of people, they're called fans, that know the game inside and out. What makes you a great coach is how you lead, how you communicate, how you are creative and how you can take things out of your head and get them on paper and then bring them to life 
in the real world, how you can hold people accountable, how you can inspire, how you can educate, how you can motivate. And those things are hanging all, all walks of life. And so not only in multiple sports, um, which I, I think good coaches are good coaches at any level in any sport. Um, I'm way outside of my lane in baseball into football, basketball, soccer, any of those endeavors. But then once you understand that the best of the best in what I do, they're teachers and they're leaders. So now that opens up everything to you. And like you said, you, you, you talked about Sam Walton. I have not read Sam Walton's book, but I can tell you, I would take something from it mm -hmm. because of, of the leadership piece of it. So absolutely. Um, getting outside of your immediate arena, I think is, is wildly valuable. Like um, the Steve Jobs biography, um, just phenomenal with endless takeaways. Um, and so most of what you're seeing behind me, it's not, you know, a hit. Yeah, the, the Ted Williams hitting book is up there. You know, the driveline pitching book is up there, of course. But it's, it's just a lot more leadership and management, um, communication, writing, things like that. Because I think those are the skills that really you need to be a, an elite teacher and or leader. One of you, one of the things that, you know, I know you're not a farm director now, you're the assistant general manager, but you know, you're overseeing coaching and, and coaching development. How do you quantify, you know, you're quantifying players all the time with their metrics. You can tell, you know, who's doing what, who needs to be promoted, demoted, but just by, by the numbers that they put up, how do you do that for a coach? Yeah. Well, it's actually not as hard as maybe the question as you made the question sound the same yeah. way, you know, do players get better? And right now, you know, we're in this era where we can quantify so many things that we've never been able to quantify. And so we're able to, you know, take a hitter, for example. Okay. If I'm your coach, and we're going to evaluate you on, you know, hitting the ball hard, swinging at the right pitches, and making contact. Because there's really not much else that should be discussed with a hitter. Like, those are the things that matter. And so now if I'm in charge of 13 hitters, I can actually quantify over the course of the season, did these hitters get better in these three metrics? Did they stay the same? Did they get worse? I can actually quantify that coach's ability far better than I ever have. And, you know, coaches are, this is a performance-based environment. There's just no way around it. And, you know, you can look, hey, the, the team didn't win enough games. Okay, that's a metric. But you can now, you can kind of go behind, below the surface and, and really look at other metrics that are a little bit more controllable and those things matter. Now, does that make all of the decision-making? No, of course not. There's still the ability to look with your own eyes 
and trust your gut and know good coaching when you see it. But, you know, if I'm a hitting coach, I'm sticking to those three measurables and I'm looking to either build or maintain those things and, and, and have those three interrelate in a way that allow the hitter to be more productive. And oftentimes coaches, you know, if, if, if you're selling cars, it's a pretty easy metric. Did you sell cars? The salesman is an unbelievable job of selling cars. Okay. How many did he sell? We don't really have to guess. Mm-hmm. We can measure it. <laughs> Say, well, he sold more than anybody. Okay. He's a great salesman. If he's a great salesman and he's selling fewer than anybody, eh, I don't know that he's a great salesman. So in this era of measurement, it's actually far easier to do it than we've ever done it. And then you just have to have the wisdom and experience to know, you know, again, I don't know who, it's one of my favorite quotes. Not all things that can be measured should be measured, you know? Um, that's important too, that you have to maintain that, that ability to think critically and understand that sometimes really good coaching does not result in better performance out of the player. That can happen. It shouldn't happen a lot and shouldn't consistently happen, but it does happen. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I, it's awesome to hear you say that because I, I've asked that question before and I've gotten a, a blank stare back, um, to be honest. So um, it makes sense the answer that you gave right there, but I've, I've heard otherwise, which is interesting to say the least. But um, Andy, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I know that um, not a lot of people in professional baseball do kind of stuff like this and and speak at at you know some of the things that you know you've spoken at and you know and I understand that um, but it's just the impact that you know you doing stuff like this um, at the lower levels is is huge and I know I've benefited from it from the players that I work with and so I appreciate you doing it. And I, I hopefully, um, you know, we'll be able to, to see you speak um, sometime down the line, too. But um, again, thank you so much for coming on. Happy to help and uh, appreciate you giving me the opportunity. So um, thanks again.